Well, how many of you can relate to that? <laughs> Family photo time. Especially when you got little kids, uh, t- uh, toddlers, and grandchildren, and children, and it's, yeah, it's a mess. We tried to get a photo this summer. We were all together for a vacation, and it was like to get one where everybody's looking at the camera, and one of the kids aren't crying or grabbing something or making some kind of face, it, it's almost impossible. I think we got one photo out of about 20. So, if you have a Bible with you, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 2 as we are studying in this portion of Scripture on the topic of the gift. And it says in chapter 2 and verse 1, and I hope you picked up an outline as you came in this morning, um, but it will appear here on the screen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "'Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews?' We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. You might want to underline that. That's an understatement. And all Jerusalem with him, when he had called together all the people, the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Christ? Where is the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared to them. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Now go and make a very careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was." And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so God obviously prepared a special visit from some very special guests here in Bethlehem to find the king of the Jews. Now, we have come to know these gifts as wise men, and of course, tradition tells us there were three of them, and that's based primarily on the fact that they had three gifts, but there probably were more than three, and at at best, they would have been traveling with an entire entourage because of the country they were coming from. They would have been traveling through very dangerous territory and would have needed that entourage, if nothing else, for their safety. The Bible doesn't tell us um, where they came from exactly, other than they came from the east, which was most likely Persia, which is modern-day Iran. So they made this difficult journey, and they've taken several months to come to the place where Jesus is. Again, another misnomer is that the wise men showed up on the night of his birth, but actually they probably came at least six to maybe 12 months after Jesus' birth. You'll notice that in verse 11 that Mary and Joseph, they're in a house, and the word for child here in the Greek is pedion, which is a, a toddler, not an infant, because there's another Greek word that would have been used had Jesus still been an infant. So needless to say, a great amount of time took place between the time that the wise men left Persia and made their way, you know, coming from the east, all the way into Bethlehem as they are seeking uh, to find Jesus. And it says to us that these 
these men were of a special council, really, of the king of Persia, Persia, which was known as the Magi. And that's where the word Magi comes from. As a part of this Magi, they would have studied astronomy and astrology and religion and science. And from time to time, they would be called upon by the king to interpret dreams or to discern uh, the stars and, and you know, what was it saying and what was directing it towards. And, and so here, um, the interpreter of, of dreams, there is someone else in Scripture who was known to be a special part of the council of, per, of king of Persia in the Magi um, category, and that was Daniel, okay? So um, 600 years earlier, Daniel, the one who's rescued from the lion's den, was part of this group called the Magi. In fact, he was called the chief of the Magi. And in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel shows up to him. This is the same angel that shows up to Mary to let her know that she's about to give birth to the Messiah. Gabriel shows up, and he makes a prediction. He makes a prophecy, and it's given to Daniel, and it said, in essence, that 483 years after the decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem, the king will come. And so here's what I think probably happened. 600 years have passed. The Magi read this prophecy. Then they see this supernatural sign, this unusual star in the cosmos, and this star is not just sitting still now, but it's beginning to move, and they're beginning to follow it, and they're taking their journey from Persia and following the star, believing that the prophecy of Daniel is about to be fulfilled. There is a king who is about to be born from the throne of David who will rule and reign forever and ever. And so this is exactly what we read here. It is God's gift to the world. Again, in Galatians 4, 4 says, In the fullness of time, when God knew that, it, that the time was right in the world in which we live, Jesus entered into the world, God's gift to humanity. And so the gifts that were brought by the Magi at first glance do not seem very practical. But as we're unpacking these gifts, we begin to understand the multifaceted side of Jesus this gift that God has given to us. And the, the more we dive into it and the more we begin to understand, we begin to understand to a greater level the greatness of this gift and how personal of a gift it really was to us. And so the first gift was that of gold. Even back then, gold was considered to be a very precious metal, often associated with royalty, but it was not a gift you would bring to a baby. Even the wealthiest among the wealthy would not bring the gift of gold because a baby was born into royalty. This was a gift that was reserved for kings. And how appropriate when Jesus is born, he's given the gift of gold that represents the fact that the king of kings and the Lord of lords has just entered into the realm of humanity. Psalm 3 says he is the king who is behind every king. Now, the scripture bears out, if you're a king, you have a kingdom. There are only two kingdoms that we know of, and that is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, over whom Jesus is king, and then there's the kingdom of darkness, over whom Satan is the king. So that's why the Bible says in Colossians 1.13, when you give your life to Jesus, God has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
And so, though Jesus defeated Satan when he was here on earth, he has not yet been destroyed. The second gift that was given was that of frankincense. The frankincense uh, really speaks of Jesus as our high priest. The high priest would use frankincense in order to perform all kinds of rituals uh, in the temple. And so while the gold showed Jesus to be a king, the frankincense reveals him to be the long-awaited high priest. So in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is referred to as the high priest, and like no other, he would take away the sins of the people once and for all. As you know, all throughout the Old Testament, there is a very elaborate sacrificial system that went on. The high priest played a very significant role in that sacrificial system, but those sacrifices of animals could not take away humanity's sin. It could only cover our sin. It could not remove the guilt and the shame of our sin, but this is exactly what Jesus came to do. As our high priest and as the sacrificial system temporarily covered the sins of humanity uh, but could not provide forgiveness, Jesus would come and he would change that forever as we're going to study today. And then the gift of myrrh. The gift of myrrh typically is a perfume that is not given to a baby because it was reserved for death. It was often used with other spices as an embalming procedure that would be taking place when someone died. Joseph of Arimathea, we know when he came and collected the body of Jesus, that he brought perfumes and spices, and myrrh would have been one of those as Jesus' body was being prepared for burial. In other words, this gift made it very clear that Jesus was born to die. That what Mary held in her arms was not a mere baby like any other ordinary baby, but this was the Lamb of God who was coming now to take away the sin of the world, and this would result in his death. And later Jesus himself would say, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. And so this gift was the gift of a suffering servant. So last week we looked at Jesus as our king, and we noted that there are three responses that can be given to Jesus as king. You can oppose him like Herod. Herod decided, listen, I, I have no room for a rival king. Herod was quite paranoid about his kingship anyways, and he oftentimes, you know, took people out physically, had them killed, uh, family members or otherwise, if he believed there was a rival king. And so in, in Herod's mind, it's okay that Jesus could be in the vicinity, but don't call him a king. Because if he's a king, he's a rival king, and therefore now he is my enemy. And so we note that um, Herod was very disturbed by this news that he received. That word disturbed means to be agitated, to be irritated, to be frustrated over this, this rival king. And one of the ways that many people miss Jesus at Christmas is because we try to be our own king. We try to be our own ruler, and we are disturbed by the fact that Jesus wants to be the only king over our lives to the point and to the degree that we are willing to submit and surrender ourselves to him as king over our lives, as the Magi responded to him when they brought their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so Jesus has set up his kingdom, and he declares supremacy. And people don't want Jesus to interfere with their lives, right? They're like King Herod. I don't, it's great to celebrate Christmas. I'll even acknowledge that it's Christ's birthday. But I don't want King Jesus 
in my life. I don't want his rulership over my life. I don't want him telling me how to live my life, what career I should choose or, uh, you know, how I should spend my money or my, you know, my ambition, my plans. We want to sanitize Christmas and we want to make it nice and sweet and cute, a cuddly little baby and shepherds and wise men and children and, you know, animals and gifts and all these little things. But it was anything but that. Because these gifts said to us from the very outset that Jesus came for a very specific purpose. And even at this point, when Herod finds out where this rival king is located, and uh, he sends out his, his soldiers, and they take out infanticide, they take out the infants two years and younger who are male because he believed he could stamp out the rival king. And so when Jesus shows up, um, he demands to be king, and if rejected, there's always going to be trouble, right? The reason why we have a lot of difficulties and problems in our personal lives and in our human race is because we refuse to let Jesus be the king and the ruler over our lives. Now, I hope that you're sitting here and you have already settled that issue in your heart, but there are billions of people across this globe, probably some four billion who will be celebrating Christmas, but who have never bowed to Jesus as their Savior and Lord, the King of their life, the ruler over their existence. And so the result is always the same. There's chaos, there's confusion, there's weeping, there's mourning, there's pain, there is division because Jesus can be in the vicinity. He just can't be on the throne of my life. He can't tell me what to do. He can't be my point of reference in life. He can't overrule my desires. He's there, but he's just there. And so if Jesus can't overrule you, then you're really not celebrating Christmas. If Jesus can't silence you when he speaks, you're really not celebrating Christmas. If Jesus can't tell you no when you are thinking yes, you're really not celebrating Christmas. What you are celebrating is yourself because you have made yourself king over your life, ruler over your life, and you only will submit to self. So call it what you want, a holiday, whatever it is, don't call it Christmas unless Jesus is the king over your life. This is why I don't get upset when people say to me, happy holidays, because it just says to me, Jesus is probably not the ruler of your life. Jesus probably really doesn't really factor in. You don't mind that he's in the vicinity, you just don't want him overseeing your life. Herod didn't want competition. He didn't want anyone else to take a throne next to him, but Jesus came as king of kings and lord of lords. The second thing you can do is dismiss him like the religious leaders. Right, so here are the guys who went to seminary, went to Bible college seminary, and they were, the, they were the elite of the religious people. And so Herod says to them, where is this Christ? Now the word Christ means the anointed one. This is a very specific term. It means the Messiah. It is what every prophesy, prophecy prophesied about is coming of the Christ. And they quote to him Micah 5, 2. 700 years before this event, he will be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was nothing but a two-bit small town that really wasn't on anybody's radar. And one of the reasons why I so believe in the word of God is because if somebody 700 years before the event can tell me where it's going to take place, with whom it's going to take place, and how it's going to take place with 100% historical accuracy, I'm going to follow that book. 
And that's exactly what happens. He's born in Bethlehem. They come, and Jesus is exactly where they said he was going to be. And so they knew the verse, but even the teachers of the law, if somebody's coming because they were following this star, and they're these magi from a distant country, and they're looking for the Christ, where he's going to be born, and yet all the religious leaders would not make the five-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to find out if Jesus had actually been born. You see, if, you, if the written word doesn't lead you to the living word, it just becomes another word. They didn't get it. They didn't even try to get it. They didn't even come to even investigate whether or not. And so the purpose of God's written word is always to lead you to the living word who is Jesus Christ. And so the religious Bible quoting folks never made it into, watch this, they never made it into a living relationship with Jesus even though they could quote the Torah backwards and forwards and upside down and inside out. Never had a living relationship with Jesus. You say, how do you know that? Well, Jesus' own words, John chapter 5. Here's what he said in verses 39 and 40. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Do you get that? You refuse to come to me to have life. That's why Jesus would often say to them things like, well, you guys are whitewashed tombstones. In other words, you look good on the outside. You've got all the regalia. You, you, you look great, and you're carrying Torah under your arm, but you are dead. You are spiritually dead on the inside. Unless you are drawn to Jesus because of who he is, you can study the Bible all of your life, and you can quote scripture all the way to hell and miss the relationship. That's a very dangerous thing. And so the Bible helps us to come to the feet of Jesus because he is the ultimate gift. And so they didn't understand why Jesus came. They didn't understand why, how he came to deal with sin and salvation he came to deal with the sin in our lives so that we could be saved and sinless and fellowship with him as sons and daughters of the living God and to become citizens of his kingdom. But then the wise men, they came and they worshiped him. And so that's what happens when you come to the feet of Jesus is that you bow and you worship and you surrender and you submit to his lordship over your life. Listen, there is nowhere in scripture does it say that we are to come and become Christians. Christian, the word Christian was not used until the church at Antioch and it was used as a derogatory term. Jesus never called us to come and be Christians. He said, come and follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a follower who will follow in the dust of the rabbi and allow the rabbi to be his true north, to be the one who gives guidance and direction throughout the course of your lifetime. That's what it means to surrender to him as king and lord of your life. This is what Jesus has called us to. And he is alone is worthy of our praise and now we come to Jesus as our high priest. The book in the Bible that talks about Jesus as being our high priest more than any other book is the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews was written for a very specific reason. It is addressing a group of people who are struggling for various reasons with their faith. All right? They don't oppose Jesus. They've not dismissed Jesus. 
They've given their life to Christ. They're trying to follow him the best they can. But for various reasons, they're struggling to go all the way with Jesus. Like, okay, we understand that struggle, right? We desire for Jesus to be king over our lives. We desire to submit our lives to him. But there are times in our lives when it's more difficult than others, right? I mean, we would all admit that. You wish you were stronger in your faith at times than you are. And sometimes you find yourself being pulled in many different directions. Or you've faced a very difficult year like 2020 with COVID and all the other things that have been happening throughout the course of this year. And you're, you're trying to make decisions, but you're so easily distracted. And it's just hard to get committed to God who is invisible. And so, you know, we don't, have, we don't have flesh and blood to hang on to, to sit down and talk to. God is invisible. Our high priest, Jesus, is on his throne, yes, in the heavenlies, but we don't physically see him. And so sometimes we just wish, you know what, God, I, I just wish you had some flesh on you down here where I could just sit down and crawl up into your lap and, and have a conversation. This is where they were in, in that in that particular time frame in the early church, and the writer had one basic message to the entire congregation. He says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Learn how to fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He has established an unshakable kingdom that cannot be moved. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. That was his message throughout the entire book of Hebrews. Although the world is under the authority of Christ, and in subjection to him, the planet we live upon is still broken. So the high priest had one role, primary role, and two functions. Here was his primary role. He was to be the mediator or the representative. representative right? The mediator between God and humanity or the representative of the people to God. So if you look in 1 Timothy, or you can just listen in chapter 2, it says this um, in verse 3, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and how many mediators? One mediator. Not five mediators, not two mediators, not 12 mediators. There's only one true mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. In the Old Testament, oftentimes fights between nations were settled by a representative going out onto the battlefield representing a certain nation. For example, David and Goliath, right? So the deal was with the Philistines, Goliath says, hey, come out and fight me. The winner takes all. All right, if I win, you're going to be in subjection to us. And if I lose, then we will be in subjection to you. And so David steps out on the field. He's nothing but a shepherd boy. He takes a very unusual weapon with him, his slingshot. He takes out Goliath. And so he is the champion on that field of battle representing the nation of Israel as the armies of Israel are encamped upon the sides of the hill watching from afar but not lifting a finger to help. And this is exactly what Jesus did as he came into the world as our representative. Jesus won the battle against our real enemy, our real giant, Satan, as we really basically stood on the sidelines and could not lift a finger to help him in that endeavor. That's why we need a high priest that is beyond us, outside of us, and far removed from us. 
And so as king, Jesus represented God to the people as our high priest. Jesus represents the people to God. We need both. And so the Bible says that Jesus is both king and high priest. That is very unusual. Because priests were to come from the line of Levi, whereas a king was to come from the tribe of Judah. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, but he is both king and priest. There is only one other individual in the entire Bible who held both titles at once, and his name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes onto the scene in Genesis chapter 4, and I'm not going to go into all that. I'm only mentioning his name so that when you get to heaven and he comes up to you and says, Hey, my name is Melchizedek. You probably read about me in the Bible. I don't want you to give him that blank stare like, uh, really? You're, you're in the Bible? Oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. The only other time Melchizedek is mentioned is in Hebrews chapter 7, which gives us a a little more background about him. But as king and priest, again, you wouldn't want to combine those two things. That's like being a police officer and a pastor or a um, a, little league dad and the referee at the same time, right? You just don't want to, it's just not something you normally combine, but it was needed because we needed a representative between us and God, and we needed to know what God is like, and so Jesus became the representative of our Heavenly Father back to us. Because if you were just to read the Old Testament by itself, you would think that God's just this angry, grumpy old guy who's just looking for ways to wipe people out. That's why people always say to me, well, you know, Pastor, why does God so, seem so angry in the Old Testament but becomes really a nice guy in the New Testament? That's a long story, a whole nother sermon, but suffice it to say, Jesus came as to show us what the Father is absolutely, truly like. And so, um, as king, the king was the lawgiver, he was the judge. The priest was the friend, he was the counselor, he's the one who could sympathize in your weaknesses. And, and so, uh, the king was a person of truth, the, the priest was a person of tears. Now, here's the whole point of this. How can Jesus rule with perfect justice, but in a way that sympathizes with us in our weakness? It's called the cross. It's where the justice of God and the mercy of God cross pathways. And so Jesus came as the Lamb of God in order to die in our place, to be our substitute. That's a very important term that the people had to begin to understand. A substitute. And so the first primary function of the priest, and by the way, Adam, just as he was a representative of all humanity, Jesus is the representative of all of the kingdom of God. And so the primary function of the priest, first of all, was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. So look in Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. I'll give you two references of scripture as we kind of flesh this out for just a moment. It says in verse 17, Hebrews chapter 2, For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In other words, Jesus took on a a human body in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of people. Look at that word, atonement. What does that mean? What does that mean? Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's why this is important. The people felt like they needed something or someone to represent them before God. Because here's what humanity knows. 
You instinctively know there is a disconnect between you and your creator. Now, people might suppress that truth. They might deny that truth. But deep in their hearts, we know that we're not perfect. We know that we don't measure up. We know that we have done things, said things, been involved in things that would forever create an enormous amount of guilt and shame in our lives. We know that instinctively. And so what do we do? We do the same thing Adam and Eve tried to do. We try to cover it up. And so that's the first impulse is to cover ourselves up. And this is the universal quest of mankind in every sense. We're trying to find a way that we can take away our sense of guilt and shame. We're trying to find a way that we can make ourselves pleasable, acceptable in God's eyes. That we instinctively know that there's a God who is outside of time, space, and matter. Because you have to be outside of time, space, and matter if you're going to create time, space, and matter. And that God is holy and God is just. And therefore, we are unholy, we're unjust, and we just have that sinking feeling, we're not going to make it. And so this is what they had back then. This is what we still have today. And so we have, we're looking for a way. How can I bridge that gap? And we understand instinctively, again, we can't do that. We need a representative. We need somebody to stand in the gap for us. Even if a person does not believe in God, you can look at your life and see that for most of your life, you've been on this quest to prove yourself to God. And when you realized you couldn't do that, you did the next best thing. You tried to prove your worth and your value and your acceptability in the eyes of other people. That's why it's so, so important to us, how people view us, what they say about us. Um, like, we need people to validate, to make us feel important and worthy. And so we're always trying to show them that there's something about me that makes me worthy of their love, worthy of their admiration, something that, that you know, sets me apart from others, you know? You're, like, you're, you're smarter, you're prettier, you have a better hobby, you have, you know, you, you have X number of dollars, you have this job, you've accomplished these things. And, and so on and on we go because we're looking for validation. We're all doing that. And all you've done is really replace God's opinion for the opinions of others because they have really become God for you and to you, but you still need to go between some kind of priestly element to establish your worthiness in their eyes. And so your personal accomplishments are like your priestly acts of trying to establish your sense of value in their lives. The Bible tells us that the reason we seek that validation is because we sense our separation between ourselves and God. And so the Bible says that God seeing people's sin, knowing that we deserved and that sin demanded payment, and that payment is death. But there's another principle that God taught his people in the midst of their hopelessness was that the penalty of death did not have to be paid for by the sinner if there was an acceptable substitute. And this is why Jesus came into the world. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life through whom? Through Christ Jesus. He is the substitute. He is the only substitute, the only mediator between heaven and 
and earth that is acceptable before God. And so Jesus as our high priest, the high priest on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer the sacrifice that was offered on the altar, the brazen altar. The blood was spilled and taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat on the on the Ark of the Covenant, but prior to entering into the Holy of Holies, he would take frankincense that was put into the altar of incense that was a smoke that rose up to God that, that um, symbolized the prayer of God's people, and he would take some coals out of that and put it in an urn and put it inside the Holy of Holies prior to his entering so that there would be a covering between himself and a holy God as he very meticulously, after a ceremonial cleansing of several days, he would sprinkle that blood, he would come out of that, and then he would take the, uh, a rag and kind of dip it in the blood, and he would wrap it around the neck of a goat, and that goat was set out into the wilderness known as the scapegoat, to symbolize and to represent that God is taking away the sins of his people. And so Jesus, as our high priest, came into the world as both the Lamb of God, God's ultimate sacrifice, and the scapegoat of God, which is why John the Baptist, when he saw him, said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Who takes away, who is the scapegoat, who takes away the sin of the world, so that through a relationship with him, the Bible says, when the blood has been sprinkled upon us symbolically, and we've given our life to Christ, they becomes king and ruler over our lives, Lord of our lives. At that that moment, God has taken our sin and he has separated. He's casted as far as the east is from the west. He's casted into the sea of forgetfulness because our scapegoat, Jesus, who was our substitute, the Lamb of God, has taken it away forever and he's credited our account with the righteousness of Christ so that we forever stand before our holy God, righteous and pure in his sight, not because I've earned it, not because I'm worthy of it, but because of God's love and mercy where justice crossed pathways at the cross of Calvary. I put my hope and trust in that payment and that payment alone, and therefore now we stand holy and righteous before God, sons and daughters of the God Most High, citizens of his kingdom because of Jesus. That's the gift. That's the gift. That's what Christmas is all about, but we as human beings, we don't like that pesky word sin. We prefer the word mistake. I made a mistake. You know, when my kids get in trouble when they were growing up, I didn't walk into them saying, Marissa, Stacy, you little sinners, stop it, right? No, we don't do that. You know, when we try to control the behavior of our kids, especially around Christmas time. Uh, you know, now we have Elf on the Shelf, and we've got Santa, you know, and say, well, you know, Santa's got a list, and he's checking it twice, find out who's naughty or nice, and if you get on naughty list, you know, the outcome of that, right, repercussions. And so, no, we, we don't like that word sin. We like the word mistake, because sin indicates that I know what I was doing. I, I did it willfully, and, and uh, mistake means, you know, I, I, it wasn't willful. It was just a lapse of judgment. It was a miscalculation on my part. I, I just didn't know any better, and this is a lot better. Better because when you catch me doing something, then I can say, oh, you know, my bad, I'm sorry, didn't mean to do that, broke your face, I apologize, I'll I'll pay you for it, therefore I'm really not guilty, I I don't have to have this sense of guilt or shame over what I've done, I've made a mistake, and therefore I'll I'll make restitution if I need to and if I can, and and so we just kind of move on in life, and we just kind of move on in the relationship. We love 
We love to be be caught up in mistakes, but not in sin. Let's just keep that in a category because you can't hold that against me. You can't punish me. You can't, you can't hold me accountable because, after all, nobody's perfect, right? And if I make a mistake, I really don't have to ask you to forgive me. I can just kind of say, I'm sorry, and move on. Here's the problem. If everything we do that is wrong is dumbed down to a mistake then I'm no longer a sinner in my eyes. I'm just a mistaker. I know that's not an English word, okay? But it makes the point. Which means I don't have sin, and if I don't have sin, I'm not a sinner. And if I'm not a sinner, then I don't have a need for a Savior. After all, I'm just a mistaker. And then all you have to do is try harder, promise to do better the next time, just... Break those nasty little habits. Be a little more consistent in your life. But if I'm a sinner that seems to be more fundamental to who I am, then simply trying harder is not going to get the job done. Trying to rid myself of those nasty habits is probably not going to happen. You've been trying to get rid of them for years. But you've only failed. If I'm a sinner... Trying harder is not going to help me. If I'm a sinner, then I need a Savior, and that's the message of the gospel. I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, and God has provided the Savior. That's the gift of Christmas. And so the problem with this mistaker thing is that we know ourselves better than that, right? People can try to build that facade all they want, but I'll guarantee you when you lay down at night and the music has faded and you're laying there in the darkness and you're thinking about the events of your day and the events over your lifetime, you know better. In fact, you've done a lot of things intentionally that you wouldn't own up to, you may not confess before anyone else, but in your heart of hearts, you know it was intentional. In fact, you've done it before, you plan on doing it again, and if you can get away with it, you'll keep on doing it. You've been lying, many of you have been lying since you were five years old. I remember the very first time I lied to my mother. I can tell you what, exactly what I told her. Like it was yesterday. You, you and I have been wanting things that other people have since we were in nursery school. That's why we bit kids, you know, and took toys away from them. We just now do it in different ways as adults. And so our sinful nature says, you know, um, I, I, you know I, I, I will smile at you. You know, I'll, I'll give you all kinds of a thumbs up on Facebook, but I really hate you. Or somebody in your office you don't like gets a promotion, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, you're applauding, okay, he's got the, he or she's got the promotion, they've, they've got the plaque, they've got the little raise, but you're thinking to yourself, you know what, that should have been mine, it really should have been mine, I'm smarter than them, better than them, and it should have been mine, I should have had that promotion. Or somebody you work with you don't like, and something bad happens, and you may walk up to them and say, you know what, I'm so, so sorry this has happened to you. But inside, you're really thinking, you know what, I'm really glad. Couldn't happen to a nicer person. This is the way the human psyche is, right? This is the way we camouflage things. This is the way that we lie to ourselves. And this underlying sense of guilt and shame, no one needs to feel guilt and shame about a mistake. A mistake means you just didn't mean it. You didn't have enough information. You, you just weren't mature enough. You just weren't paying close enough attention. And if that weren't bad enough, then Jesus comes along and he upsets the apple cart. It's like he takes a stick and hits the hornet's nest. And he comes along and he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said to you, but I say to you. And he ratchets up 
the, the level of, like, you, you, you think that you've never murdered anybody? I tell you, if you have hated your brother or sister, you've already committed murder. And so he just kind of ratchets it and makes us feel worse about ourselves, right? Well, I, I can't live up to that. You think you've never committed adultery, men? He says, you've never looked upon a woman with lust. You've already committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus came with this dual message that really just kind of rocked people's world as he set the bar higher and higher, and it was quite condemning. He says, listen, in essence, no one is good enough to be in God's good favor. No one. But God loves you. Well, which is it? Both. Here's the beautiful thing, is that the people that Jesus came into contact with on a day-in and day-out basis, those who just wanted to be mistakers, they didn't like Jesus. They hated him. They never wanted to be around him, i.e., the religious Pharisees, the religious teachers, the priests of his day and time, the religious people. They didn't want him which is why they ultimately gave him over to be crucified. But those who knew in their gut that they were sinners and that they, they, they loved him because they were honest enough to look in the mirror and say, you know what, he's right. I am far worse than I ever thought. I can do things, I can think things, I can say things that I never thought I would ever say, do, or think. I am far worse than I ever thought and if there's any hope in this world for me, it's not because I'm able to do better or promise harder or commit myself more or discipline myself more. No, it's not going to be through my self-efforts. I need a Savior. They loved Jesus. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the men and women that society had kicked out and kicked to the curb. They loved him. Because they knew and understood in the core of their being, they needed Jesus. And he says, I'm here for you. I'm here to be your substitute, your savior. That's what Christmas is all about. And last thing, quickly, the second function of a high priest was to pray and to intercede on behalf of the people of God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse um, 14, it says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Jesus, our high priest, is not a distant Savior. He, he is one who understands, and he is one who cares. He understands because he's ex he took on the human body, and by the way, he took that human body back to heaven with him. He took that human body on for eternity, and so he knows what is, he's gone through. He's gone through the temptations. He's gone through the testings. He's gone through the trials. I mean, when Jesus came out and says, you know, I'm Messiah, his family thought he was crazy. There's always crazy people in everybody's family, and if you don't think so, you're probably it. And so they, they tried to do an intervention with him, like a 
and they're eventually like, he's nuts. We need to put him in an institution because he really thinks he's the Messiah. Jesus understands all that. And if you are overwhelmed and racked with pain, think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His friends have abandoned him. His disciples have fallen away. They're sound asleep. And Jesus says, my soul is so overwhelmed in agony to the point of death if you face anxiety, he understands. He understands all of that. He lived in poverty. He was criticized. He was ridiculed. He was bullied. He buried people, his friends, his family members. He has experienced everything that we have experienced in our human bodies. And so when Jesus sits on the throne in heaven, interceding on our behalf as our high priest, he does not do so unsympathetically. He sympathizes with us because he has experienced everything that you and I experience. And so your high priest is not sitting up in heaven going, well, it sucks to be you. No, he's sitting up in heaven and he is, he is cascading down upon us his strength and our weakness, his grace in our time of need. And so the Bible says, come boldly into the throne room of God. And listen, when my kids were young and they crawled up in my lap and they would say, daddy, that meant they wanted something. Listen, call, crawl up into the lap of your heavenly father and cry out, Daddy, it means you want something, you need something, but God, nothing brings God more delight than to help you in your time of need. And when you crawl up in weakness, he becomes your strength. Jesus is our high priest. He is very sympathetic to what it is we're facing in life. And I know that after this year of 2020, you are tired, you are exhausted, you are overwhelmed, and everybody's thinking the same thing. Man, I hope 2021 is better than 2020. But what if it is not? I pray that it is, but if it is not, we still have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness and enter into our weakness and give us strength. So as the Hebrew writer would say, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The gift is Jesus. Now embrace him as your savior and follow him as your king because he is both savior and Lord. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you have never or you're watching online and you have never made that move towards Jesus to be the Savior and to be the Lord of your life, he doesn't come one or the other, he comes both and. Yes, he is your substitute. Yes, he has already died for your sins. And so to receive him as Savior is to say, you know what, I cannot make myself acceptable to God. I cannot make myself worthy in God's eyes. But I believe that Jesus loves me and came into the world as my substitute to be my savior, to be the one who can forgive me of my sins. Not mistakes, my sins. And I acknowledge that. And I'm also surrendering my life over to him to be Lord of my life, to be the ruler of my life, the CEO, the one who calls the shots, the one who directs my life from this day forward. I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding, but in all, in, in all my ways I'm going to acknowledge him and he will make my pathway straight. He will put my feet on the path that leads to the best destination in life.
This is what Jesus wants for you. This is the gift of God that he gave that Christmas over 2,000 years ago, and that is a gift that he is still offering to humanity yet today. It is a gift that not only affects your life in the here and now, but affects your life for all of eternity. There is only one way into the kingdom of God. There's only one mediator, and his name is Jesus. And to those who surrender their lives to him and receive him as Savior, Lord, the Bible says he has taken your sin debt and marked it paid in full, and he has credited your debt with the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks upon you, he sees nothing but Jesus. And if that weren't enough, he indwells you with his Holy Spirit who enables us to live life in the here and now. He seals us with the promise that we will be with him for all of eternity. That is his down payment, the Holy Spirit, who empowers us in day-to-day life. Listen, friends, you need to be saved not just because you're going to spend somewhere in eternity. You need to be saved just because you're going to have to live life day in and day out while you're here on earth. Why not do it with Jesus? Why not do it and dwell with the Holy Spirit who empowers you with a power way beyond your own human willpower, your own human limitations? God is offering the gift. It is up to you to receive it by faith and putting your faith and trust in Jesus and him alone. I pray that you'll make that decision today. So God, as we close out this time together in song, I pray for those, Lord, who are, whose hearts are just feeling the tug of your Holy Spirit that they would open their heart and just cry out to you to receive Jesus to be Savior and Lord of our life. And God, when they do that, we know you're always faithful to your promises and you will do just that. You will forgive sin and dwell by the Holy Spirit. Adopt them into your family. Make them citizens of your kingdom. And that gift that they will receive, oh God, I know, will forever alter the course and the direction of their lives. And that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.